technology shapes and influences every aspect of our lives today, and we're only beginning to scratch the surface of understanding how it will radically change the way we live and work in the future. Coming up... You have to look a little bit back to see what has happened in the past, and then you have to be bold enough to imagine a different future. And sometimes I do that, I have to admit, by, by looking at science fiction. Science fiction is a, not a bad window into the future of how people see the world should be. So that's another element in our clairvoyance. You're listening to The Future Rhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth, a Nokia original series. Marcus Weldon is a man who is going to create our future. As the chief technology officer at Nokia and the president of the laboratory that gave us the transistor, the laser, and proposed the world's first cellular network, Bell Labs, it's his job to help usher in the age of 5G, a transformational technology whose power and influence we're only beginning to understand. He sees innovation as coming in waves, waves that can turn into a tsunami of innovation. And he believes the latest wave started to build in 2015. Futurithmic had a chance to pick his brain about that swelling tide, how it's going to change society, and why these waves of innovation build in the first place. Perhaps what's most surprising is Weldon doesn't see technological advances as the creators of those waves. Yeah, I think what happens is we have a human need that is unmet and that's sort of the people part of it is there's some fundamental productivity need in humanity that is unmet that drives forward a set of innovations that are created to serve that need and that set of innovations accumulate in fact aggregate to form something that looks like a tsunami more than a regular ripple uh, there are technological ripples all the time that occur because of innovation happening that perhaps that innovation is more you know similar to current reality it's sustaining sustaining innovation in clayton christensen's way of speaking the disruptive innovations when they happen are bigger and when they aggregate together and multiple disruptive innovations occur in coincidence in time that's when you get this tsunami effect and that tsunami occurs first of all, in, in technology space, and then it drives an economic tsunami on the back of that. And, and it's all driven by the need for humanity to achieve something that was previously unachievable, which generally, in my way of framing it, is some productivity gain that was missing. Because uh, this is a famous quote by Paul Krugman, an economics professor at Princeton, that says, productivity isn't everything, but in the end, it's almost everything. And I tend to think that all of human endeavor is about uh, productivity improvement. We come together collectively, uh, not as individuals, but as communities and towns and cities uh, to create innovations that are larger than any one of us could achieve. And generally those innovations, are the goal of them is to increase productivity of something human endeavor can uh, needs to achieve and and uh, is unable to uh, as a set of individuals. So, so that's sort of the large narrative, humans coming together with a need, inventing technologies that on aggregate or in aggregate create a tsunami that creates a new economic wave. If the new technology creates that wave that's followed by an economic wave, ultimately coming together to create a tsunami, I can imagine for someone in your position, it's just as important to recognize 
the building of a wave as it is to recognize the crashing of that wave as well. What triggers that and how do you see that that's coming? Yes, of course, uh, wave prescience or whatever we would call it, where you see the beginning of the wave is is critical because once the wave is forming, that generally means someone is innovating by almost by definition. The wave is a set of innovations that are appearing in the marketplace to meet a need. So if you're not in the vanguard of that wave or the early creation of that wave, then you begin to fall behind. And uh, if multiple of those innovations are happening at once, it can be quite challenging to see them all at once. And and ideally, you would like to be a participant in many of those waves so that you have maximum value in the tsunami phase when they're, they're all aggregating together to create that, uh, that large growth and surge. And you're right, if the surge is great, unlike a tsunami where the surge is a precursor to mass destruction, normally these uh, tsunamis actually create mass growth in productivity or, or human uh, accomplishment and maybe human happiness. And I can talk a bit about, I think in the end, this leads to greater human happiness. And of course, the downside of the tsunami is another period of innovation, but it, it isn't destructive. It shouldn't be destructive like a tsunami. So that's the, where the analogy falls apart. We're not sort of wiping the slate clean and starting again. These things accumulate as sort of successive tsunamis of innovation that move humanity forward progressively with, with very little damage done. There, there's always ancillary damage. You can argue perhaps the damage has been done recently to our privacy, to our sense of well-being, and that we're overwhelmed in the current internet age by the amount of data uh, and the amount of tasks and connectivity to trivial things that is overwhelming us and consuming our attention. So maybe there's some collateral damage in there. But overall, I think these these tsunamis of technology innovation lead to a better existence for humanity and, and, and a greater good. But you're right, absolutely miss them and you're in trouble. So to answer the question how I don't miss them or try not to, I've got a thousand Bell Labs PhDs with their sights on that horizon. <laughs> but also their sights are oddly set back in time because most of these tsunamis are predictable by prior attempts at them that were more ripples they didn't accumulate because it wasn't the right time technology didn't exist or it was too costly uh, or if you look at humanity you can always see the human need that is unmet so these things have a predictability about them if you can see with clarity which means you have to distance yourself a little bit from the current reality you have to understand to know what the reference state is of what's wrong. You have to look a little bit back to see what has happened in the past, and then you have to be bold enough to imagine a different future. And sometimes I do that, I have to admit, by by looking at science fiction. Science fiction is a not a bad window into the future of how people see the world should be. So that's another element in our clairvoyance. We had discussed that on a recent episode of Futurhythmic with the science fiction author Cory Doctorow, the idea that science fiction can help inform the future, but it, it doesn't necessarily predict the future, nor does it make the future inevitable. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I think the, the pieces of science fiction that persist in the popular imagination are the ones I like to latch on to. I'll use Star Trek uh, as, as my favorite example of this.
the innovations in Star Trek that we all still recall are the ones that are, have the most appeal and are therefore are solving a problem that humans perceive to have real meat, real significance. So let's start with the uh, communicator, the thing you tapped on your chest to communicate to other crew members before they were eaten by aliens. <laughs> but, but that communicator, of course, is our smartphone. So you can argue we've solved for that one. And even in a way that was richer than the just tap and speak, we actually have a mobile computing communication device, the smartphone, that is perhaps more powerful than the, than the science fiction version of it. So that's one. There was also um, the holodeck. The holodeck uh, in, in Star Trek was a room you went to to experience worlds that you couldn't otherwise experience without traveling to them. And, and you had real life experiences and you could argue our current attempts at virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality, uh, creations of holodecks. So, so that one seems to be persistent as an experiential thing, which extends beyond your physical world to, to allow you to experience greater things. There was the replicator. It was a food production unit in, in the Star Trek instantiation. But in fact, that's a 3D printer today, which does indeed produce some foodstuffs, but many, many more things besides that. So you could argue that's one that we've also created perhaps a better version of. Then the two tricky ones are the uh, warp drive, the uh, light speed engine. I don't think we've done that one yet and seem to be quite a long way off from that. And then the teleporter, the one where you get transported, you get sort of biologically dissolved and recombined at the other end. But I would argue that one, we have some uh, attempts at that by the idea of if we could actually communicate across distances, which you could argue we can, but if you could transfer exact human state across those distances, we call it empathic communications, you've essentially teleported people without having to do the biological dissolution, which is a tricky business. So I think uh, I think that one's perhaps going to be reconceived in a different way, but, but an important one that we need to solve. Oh, and one more, I forgot, the tricorder. Yes. The medical diagnostic device. And of course, there was a famous prize, X prize for a tricorder where a number of, of companies and startups created a tricorder that could diagnose 20 different con conditions. So obviously 20 isn't what you'd want in the end state. You'd want hundreds of conditions. But I think we're on the path to tricorder-like services, perhaps rendered by new sensory technologies, new cloud technologies, new AI systems. So if you think about it, uh, all but the warp drive Perhaps we have uh, a view to how to create those, and and those were innovations that uh, have you know were central to, to Star Trek's narrative. But they're the ones we remember because of the ones that solved human need problems. And again, all of those I would argue are productivity problems. Can I understand things more completely? Can I communicate more completely? Can I be more healthy? Can I see things at a distance? All of those help me to accumulate knowledge and perspective, which I have to do something with that knowledge and perspective. And generally, that's to produce something new. So that's how it connects to the theme of productivity. If this new wave is a wave of value creation, as you argue, why now? And what is that need that needs to be met? Uh, I like your phrasing. It's a need that needs to be met. Uh, what we've done up till now, I, I would argue with digital technologies is focus on the consumer segment. Uh, if you think about how you use your smart device today, it's generally around what I might say somewhat pejoratively, trivial entertainment and trivial communications, uh, meaning Snapchat-y things. I like to say cat videos or you know YouTube types of entertainment. Uh, you could say Instagram type things again, uh, selfies. So what I, those are those are rather trivial in when you frame them in the in the uh, context of human endeavour. 
I like to sometimes challenge people I'm talking to to say, do you think that's the future of human endeavor? Is in endeavor is, is more shorter videos of of pets performing tricks and selfies, and 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 no one answers <laughs> yes that that is where humanity should endeavor to go. The unmet need uh, is is a, a need in the physical world uh, to digitize the physical world, and and I'll explain that a bit. Uh, everything in our physical world. So think of transportation networks, infrastructures, factories, logistics, farms, um, warehousing, manufacturing. Uh, all those things that are largely undigitized. They remain largely physical processes. They may be assisted by a robot or two, but generally that robot or two acts as a pseudo-human performing a task, and it's not it's not digitized in a larger context. And what I mean by that is coupled to other things across digital media have an intelligent system control it that is outside its its internal workings. Uh, that intelligent system would be, think of it, an AI system that, that has larger perspective. And until we connect those things together more holistically, then, then we don't achieve the higher order productivity. The robot or assistant is performing one task well and doing that task repeatedly, but it's fixed in time and space, more or less to perform that task and just do that repeatedly. What we want to do in future is free those fixed things by making them wireless. And when you wirelessly enable them, you can actually put the control plane for that system in a place where it can compute more, bigger, better things. And that's in the cloud. And it has a maybe a higher order AI system that can actually intelligently reprogram it and control it. So it becomes flexible and adaptable, collaborative with other things. Those other things can be other robot systems or people. It's fully aware of its surroundings because it's connected to all sensory data in that environment, which includes data coming from humans, data coming from physical world sensors, think cameras, infrared sensors, ultraviolet sensors, acoustic sensors. And when I have all that knowledge brought back to one point, I can operate on that knowledge, I can compute on that knowledge using the infinite computing in the cloud, and I can send and compute perfect outcomes that allow those robots and systems and people to interact perfectly. And that's really the origin of the new productivity paradigm. It's solving for a world that is fixed in time and space to allow it to become adaptive, generative, collaborative, uh, to perform any task at any time in any place optimally. And and McKinsey and others have, have looked at this and said, what are the likely productivity gains we could achieve? And they're high. They're 40, 50, 60% improvements in productivity across nearly every industrial space uh, as we move from this fixed world to this adaptive, collaborative, wireless world. And and that's really the big shift. Think of changing your world to be 50, 60% more productive. That includes in your human life, your workday would be 60% more productive. Your leisure activities would perhaps be achieved uh, with greater productivity. And certainly organizing your personal life would be achieved with 60% 60% greater productivity. That's a better human existence for sure. But it sounds like while the end game is individual and consumer centric, it sounds more like you're suggesting this new wave of technological innovation is being driven by the enterprise, not the consumer. And if that's the case, what role does the telecom industry have to play in amplifying that wave? Yes, you're right. Uh, I, I always say that uh, industrials and enterprises will be the drivers. So it's their requirements that will drive implementation of this new network infrastructure, which is loosely we call it the, the 5G revolution, the end-to-end 5G revolution, will be driven by these new industrial and enterprise use cases. And it'll result in a new type of network in those enterprises, which is a high-performance private network based on 5G technology. Today, those networks are, are largely based on Wi-Fi. 
And Wi-Fi is a very good technology, but it's not good enough for very high performance, very low latency, very highly reliable. We call them mission critical systems. Wi-Fi can't achieve that on its own. It can provide a layer there. Think of it as the bulk capacity layer, a, a reasonable layer for data transfer, but it can't provide the control plane intelligent operations control layer that's going to be provided by 5G. So one new horizon for service providers is to build private networks, uh, working with enterprises and industrials and campuses and ports and airports and public safety infrastructure to build private networks dedicated to them based on 5G technology. So that is a service provider opportunity. It's also an opportunity for others who are not service providers who become specialists in that private networking space. And, and maybe even a company like Nokia can can sell directly into that space as well as through service providers. But the important part is those localities, those local networks that are highly optimized to achieve new new productivity levels have to connect together in a global context. Almost no company these days is uh, present in only one site. Uh, normally there are many sites and they're globally distributed. So the ideal scenario would be highly optimized local networks, private networks, coupled together over wide area infrastructure so that they form a seamless whole. And that's very much the, the uh, preserve of service providers. Wide area networking with high performance attributes is where the service providers um, hold dominion. And in rightly so, they built very impressive infrastructure. And that'll be the other part of 5G. 5G in the wide area, connecting together 5G in local areas and end to end that has to be interworked, which is again, a role service providers can play by doing the interworking between local area and wide area even if they're not the providers of the local area infrastructure themselves, they, they will provide that interworking role into the wide area infrastructure. So very important role for service providers, but a new dynamic and one they have to react to and, and decide their strategy on. And again, a new opportunity for companies like Nokia and others to explore perhaps different offers in that space as well. Well, you can provide the telecom industry with the gear it needs to make 5G a reality, but the success of 5G depends on end-to-end -end coordination, particularly with clients that are expecting reliability to go from 99.9% to 99.999%. And you're not responsible for such issues as last mile. Do telcos really understand the fundamental workload they face in build-outs? It's a very good question. And that was a lot of nines you, you had there. Yeah, it's six nines, so 99.9999% reliability is the industrial requirement. Uh, and it's understandable if you're running a control process uh, and the offer was uh, it works 90% of the time or 99% of the time, but 1% of the time it doesn't work and the system has to reboot and reconfigure. Of course, no factory would volunteer for that offer. So these six nines gets you to you know, fractions of time out per year. And normally there's a, even a backup system that will potentially kick in and, and run while you're doing, if ever there's any outage, it'll kick in to replace the 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 element that is perhaps uh, compromised. So, so we actually think of, even higher reliabilities by having online backup that, that can take over during any uh, outage. Back to the larger point is, do do we as Nokia understand that last mile and do service providers understand the workload? I think that is the question. I think um, it is an open question as to who build these, builds these private networks and these last mile networks. Is it service providers in their current uh, setup? They're not really set up to do that. Uh, to enterprises. Typically, they take a fiber to the door of the enterprise if it's a large enough enterprise, but they don't go inside the enterprise with their own offer. They may have an offer from another vendor that they resell, 
that provides the Wi-Fi network inside that enterprise or factory. But service providers often stop at the door with their own offer, meaning their own infrastructure. They do offer VPN services, virtual private network services. They do offer voice services in uh, what's called IPPBX. So sort of these the four number dialing IP based exchanges. So those are service provider offers. But it's quite different to go inside the enterprise and say, I'm going to manage your connectivity inside the enterprise in a high performing, low latency, highly reliable infrastructure where I perhaps have to secure every device. I have to do basic analytics on every device because I have to understand the location of every device and and help you track those devices. So it's a much more intelligent, adaptive networking play, not just a box play. So it's a good question whether service providers uh, will be able to adapt to to make that offer. Equally, Nokia has to adapt to, to make an offer in that space. Again, either helping service providers or going directly. And new entrants will offer, uh, will make offers in that space as well. So it's uh, a bit of a wide, a wide open west. Uh, so the wild west maybe, uh, or the wide open world uh, of who will win in that space. But that's why it's so exciting, I think, at the current time. There'll be new entrants, there'll be current entrants, there'll be reimagining of offers uh, and, and technologies from different vendors that will drive this this new phase of innovation and productivity. So couldn't be a more exciting time to be in the networky business because I think uh, networks will lead and, and other technologies will, will be layered on top of that to achieve the uh, end goals. This is a, an adapt or die sort of scenario for telcos trying to avoid the dumb pipe moniker. So they'll need to do this. And you're focusing on five specific areas? Yes, uh, it is a, an adapt or die one. So we've identified five end-to-end solution networks that will have preeminent value. And and they are the following. There's the foundational communications network. Think of that as the 5G network infrastructure that, that underpins everything. Uh, it's the core fabric in, in some ways. We, we even refer to it, it as the digital nervous system. Uh, so that, that'll be foundational. And in that, I also include some AI systems that are the brain that allow that network to self-optimize and and cloud uh, move, move to the edge. So not centralized cloud as we uh, know it today, but edge cloud, which which is where the brain resides to provide low latency, high performance optimization. So it's network, edge cloud, and brain is is the base layer, and that's the basic connectivity layer. It also does a bit of sensing and localization. So it's intelligent connectivity, connectivity, not just dumb pipe. It senses the location of things. It forms beams in the direction of those things, and it self-optimizes. So it's a much more intelligent network than today. And then on top of that, we see higher order networks, transportation networks that will leverage these fabrics, but it's a whole set of different problems of how to automate transportation. We see healthcare networks being automated as well, so you have new healthcare paradigms. We see a, uh, a new uh, manufacturing network uh, appearing as as a as a, a new layer on, on top of that as well. So it's transportation, healthcare, communications, manufacturing, um, and if I missed one there in the list, um, security, security, yeah, it was security is a property of all the networks. Actually, each each one of those network types has to be secured. Uh, so so we, we see a manifest change in in sort of infrastructures that have to be built uh, to, to transform humanity. And yes, the properties that matter end to end security, end to end distributed cloud, as I mentioned, end to end 5G foundation, a property called network slicing has to be build, which is how to use common infrastructure for all the different applications. Um, and then uh, on, and, and around that, then we have this idea of uh, 
end-to-end industrial automation, which is really that private network space. So, so we, we think of network structures that get built like that. We call them end-to-end solutions, but they enable these higher-order transportation, communication, healthcare, manufacturing, logistics-type uh, networks as well. So, so they, they have higher-order purposes uh, as well. Industry 4.0 has different requirements than typical mobile users. In many cases, it's not about the bandwidth as much as it's about the latency. Do the telcos that sell into industry the infrastructure necessary to cut the cord on wired machinery with these complex systems, or is that your job? I think it's a combination, actually. We, we, we very much see service providers as being one of the primary ways to enable this new reality because they do have, they are the service provider of choice for many enterprises. So, so, so we see them playing a preeminent role, but there are some requirements on that role. Generally, industrials don't want to use a uh, spectrum that is unique to one service provider because they feel like they, they will be locked in to using just that service provider's infrastructure forever. If you think about it, all the devices in their infrastructure has to have to have modems put on. Those modems will communicate on certain frequency bands. If those frequency bands are uniquely tied to one operator's spectrum allocation, that, that's a very strong lock-in. And, and most industrials are resistant to that idea that they, they will only have one choice. And most industries always have tried to have a couple of choices. So there's one concern there. The other is that they want to make sure that they're important enough as a customer. If you're putting your life on the line, as um, as these businesses will be, these are mission-critical networks that run all their, in, their processes and their tooling and their manufacturing, their, their logistics. If your life is on the line, you want to make sure that you're treated that way with the utmost priority and importance. And today's service providers tend to treat enterprises more as just big consumers and not as uh, mission critical partners. So those are the two concerns industrials have. But if service providers can overcome those concerns, and in my view, that might mean creating a separate division that, that deals with private networks and enterprises in a new way, then in fact, service providers have a leading role to play. If if that doesn't happen, then then those enterprises and industrials are trying to look to other companies who, who might treat these problems with the importance they, they merit and with the attention they merit. Uh, and that's where Nokia and other companies come in. They approach us to, to see if we can be that partner if a service provider cannot be. We obviously don't own Spectrum. So to some extent, that can be an advantage because we're willing to use any Spectrum, including unlicensed Spectrum or shared Spectrum. Uh, but we're also not a service provider today. So, so there are pros and cons to both. And if I could have wave a magic wand and have the ideal answer. The ideal answer would be we sell to service providers in partnership with it. We offer the service to enterprises and it's all a happy triumvirate. Whether or not that happens uh, remains to be uh, seen, but I, I would like to see that happen. So when you reference that enterprises recognize they'll be doing mission critical work where we're not just metaphorically, but literally putting lives on the line, what particularly fascinates me is that this also would apply to the transportation industry. So think of transportation networks of the future, what you would ideally like, and I'll, I'll be a little bit forward-looking here, that your vehicle would arrive wherever you were, and it's the vehicle you need for that for that moment in time. If you need the large people conveyor because you have a group, you get the people conveyor. If you need the sports car because you want to have a bit of fun, the sports car arrives, that, that vehicle, whether or 
autonomously or, or people-driven arrives on perfect schedule for you at, at the perfect time, you get in. It is either driven by a highly trained person or, or autonomously. It already knows your destination. It knows the optimum route. It can influence the traffic lights and the road controls along that route um, by, by essentially sending its data and uh, that data is aggregated into some intelligence system that works out what is the optimal routing of all traffic, what's the optimal control of the traffic light infrastructure or any other infrastructure of their roads, bridges, tolls, whatever else you have to navigate, mission fully refreshed, your end, all data that you needed uh, for whatever work or context uh, you need for the destination is provided to you en route. So perfect information at the perfect time over the same infrastructure to that vehicle. Maybe the windows of that vehicle act as your screen or your display because you don't need, you shouldn't need to carry a laptop. You've got these uh, these uh, OLED screens that are transparent glass, but but can actually uh, turn on and, and become displays. So, so you don't even carry anything with you. You get that information just presented. You can touch those screens, interact with them. You could set up calls dynamically using the AV system in the car. So again, you don't need headsets and microphones and phones. You use the car modem and, and car 5G infrastructure. So, you know, in, in that world, uh, the vehicle becomes part and parcel of your daily life in a way that is highly optimized and it's not one vehicle it's any vehicle for any purpose and any task with every context provided for the journey and every and all information you needed for your destination provided and you arrive perfectly refreshed perfectly knowledgeable uh, uh, perfectly routed in the perfect amount of time uh, that's sort of how we imagine the future of transportation and i think whether the vehicle is autonomous or not really doesn't matter in that. That's not the optimization. It's the fact that the, you had perfect conveyance from A to B with perfect knowledge and perfect time. That's really the revolution. Healthcare. There seems to be a stealth 5G use case here. We know the, the, the big headline is remote surgery over the internet, but there's far more use cases for 5G in the healthcare space than just that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if we reimagine healthcare, I, I always like to say my version of healthcare, I'm a, f a fairly average uh, user or perhaps below average user of the healthcare system, but it's roughly uh, like this. Uh, once a year, I go to a doctor for a checkup who asks me a set of summary questions, which I provide partial answers to, partly because I, I don't recall what happened during the course of the year accurately, partly because I'll obfuscate anything that I'm uncomfortable with. Uh, and then based on that, they try and diagnose any condition or likely condition uh, that, that may impact my, my well-being. Uh, it's a highly imperfect system. It's almost a witch doctory uh, or mag magic uh, uh, prescience or clairvoyance. It's not based on real data, real facts, real analysis. It's a best effort system of conjecture. And if we if we say that's how we treat our health, it's not health at all, right? It's a it's it's not looking at well-being. It's not looking at anything that you would describe as uh, as uh, meaningful analysis. It's almost uh, leaps of fantasy or, or conjecture or 
speculation or the opposite, meaning a a uh, belief in the, that the status quo must be the reality because you're not reporting anything. So it's sort of either status quo maintaining or hyperbolic assertion that something might be wrong. It's it's not based in, in, in a rational reality. So imagine that in future, if I were wearing a continuous set of sensing things, and maybe I'm not even wearing them on my body, they're, in, they're part of my clothing, they're part of my environment, my infrastructure, so I, my whole house or home or workplace is sensorized, and that data is sent to an intelligent system, almost certainly not a person, that mines the data for anomalies. And those are anomalies, anomalies are re- relative to my genome, so they're, they're given context of my genome because what's anomalous for me may not be anomalous for another person. Uh, so, so it's analyzed in that context. It's analyzed relative to my family context, which is beyond my just genomic data. What is the experiential or nurture data of my family uh, environment? What is the nurture of my environment that's local to me? Where have I lived? What have I have I lived in a city and been exposed to certain levels of pollution, etc.? So all of that is known about me, analysed, and only when an anomaly is seen is, does the person get involved to interpret the anomaly. So I think that system, which is really based on data-driven wellness, and uh, and it's contextualised to me, is a real healthcare system. Uh, and then the person, the doctor, gets involved when the triggering event is detected. And then, of course, a set of recommendations are provided to the doctor of likely good outcomes, given my genome, my environment, my my life, uh, rather than them guessing at what would be an outcome or just giving me a generic treatment that perhaps doesn't best apply to me. And then, of course, the action is to deliver the treatment, and maybe that is even capable of being delivered remotely, by a robotic thing. It could be a, remote, a robotic tool that allows injection, etc., or basic treatment. Or you go to a facility nearby where the uh, the doctor can remotely treat you using such a robotic tool or arm, uh, or even with a, a, a nurse practitioner or assistant who can be instructed remotely using sort, sort of augmented reality how to perform the procedure. So there's a highly optimized delivery of the outcome or the or the treatment, as well as highly optimized uh, diagnosis of what the treatment should be. That's a real healthcare system, and again, underpinned by continuously connected devices over networks to an AI system, to a human, to a robotic system that will help with the outcome. We've sort of touched on one of those other areas, in addition to healthcare and uh, transportation, manufacturing as something that is going to be revolutionized by 5G and this wave of Industry 4.0. And one element of it that's fascinating, particularly to me, in manufacturing, and actually, frankly, in the consumer world as well, is augmented reality. Since the heavy lifting for AR can't take place on my eyeglass frames, that heavy lifting needs to be offloaded to the 5G Edge Cloud. So not only will Nokia have to be good at edge computing, but so will the telecoms that AR serves. Yeah, absolutely. So AR and manufacturing, in fact, AR overall is probably one of the most disruptive uh, techniques or approaches that will apply to all these things we've been discussing. Back to my healthcare example, if I can get an AR, if I, as a doctor, remotely diagnosing a patient, I get an AR overlay that gives perfect knowledge as I'm looking at an image someone is sending to me of some condition they have and it gets immediately analyzed with a full spectral analysis 
and the doctor's given context and said, this is that, of course, that that's a very valuable use of AR. But now in a manufacturing context, it's knowing the task ahead of you. So uh, you could argue uh, that a robot needs to be given instructions as to the task it's performing if it's an adaptive general purpose robot. If it's a monopurpose robot, of course, it only does one thing, but that's the world we're trying to get away from. If it's an adaptive general purpose robot, each task is different. So it needs to be given an information overlay, an augmented reality overlay, to instruct it how to perform the new task it's been presented with perhaps only five minutes earlier. This is the new task. This is what the, the uh, assembly or the manufacturing task you have to perform. And of course, people, exactly equivalent, I need to uh, I need to deliver perfect information to people over an AR system, and there probably will be some sort of goggles or earpiece that tells them what to do and instruct them how to perform the new task. And of course, then people, robots working collaboratively are both getting the same AR overlay so that they can work in concert with each other in perfect harmony. But you're right, that AR delivery system, because it, it's all knowledge in the world, if, if, if you think about it, that AR system has to have all knowledge about every task uh, embedded in it. It can't be on the end device, as you say, that AR knowledge system has to reside in the cloud and, and locally in the edge cloud has to be all the knowledge you need for that moment because I need very low latency and latencies related to distance and the speed of light. So if I need instant information, uh, and I'll define that as one millisecond delay is instant uh, enough, then I can only be 100 kilometers away from that information, which means my cloud containing all knowledge I need can only be 100 kilometers away. So that is very much part of this new paradigm. 5G networking, connecting to an edge cloud that is local, so it's got low latency, and the edge cloud runs the knowledge system that provides the context to me for every task I need to perform in my locality. And then, of course, the role of central cloud is to store the rest of knowledge that I don't need currently, but as soon as I need it, that knowledge gets moved to the edge cloud. So again, I can benefit from very low latency, very high performance and interactivity. While industries like transportation and healthcare are going to rely on that low latency, high bandwidth capability, one of the 5G scenarios that really plays out for me that doesn't get a lot of play is the fact that it's also very low power, which gives us the ability to create these remarkable sensors, place them everywhere. They don't need the batteries to recharge like they do today because of that low power requirement. The logistics industry must be salivating. Logistics is, is the movement of goods uh, over over the top of a transportation network, of course, generally. But uh, working out which good and which raw material needs to be at which location at each point in time is a huge optimization problem. Think of the stockpiling of goods we tend to do uh, and the inability to move them to the optimum location. So there's a super abundance in some places and, and, a, and a deficit in other places um, and wastage in that system. And then the movement of those things, of course, consumes energy that is unnecessary uh, if, in fact, the good didn't need to be moved from place A to place B. So I think logistics optimization by having perfect knowledge of the location of everything the ability to produce things at each location, meaning to take raw materials and manufacture something, and then the demand at that location, and optimizing across all those things would massively increase uh, the ability to produce goods per unit time in the optimal way at the lowest cost, because I wouldn't have 
surfeit or deficit, and they wouldn't have time gaps appearing, which which waste which waste productivity. Because if productivity is the number of goods per unit time, if I take excess time in producing it, obviously my productivity is down. If I produce too many goods <coughs> too many goods per unit time, then of course that's wastage, and that's a loss of of productivity in another task that I could have been performing. So I overproduced in one task, I must underproduce in, a, in another task. So, so all of that is very important. And that logistics optimization is very much a, a property of putting sensors on everything, having a knowledge system that can track everything, that can intelligently discern what pieces need to arrive where based on the manufacturing ability at that site. So again, it's one of these sensory networky, brainy problems that I've described. And then last, utilities. Energy distribution is is today a unidirectional thing, mostly from some energy generating facility uh, delivered over a distribution network to, uh, to users of that energy. But increasingly, sources of energy are being generated locally at site, meaning solar power, wind power, etc., that is being injected into the grid. So the energy grid is becoming a real mesh, and that needs much more intelligent management of those energy resources, both to control the onboarding of that energy in a manageable way, uh, to use batteries where you want to store the energy for uh, off-peak periods, where perhaps that's the appropriate uh, way to, to solve the problem. And of course, to optimally run the larger generating utilities so they're running when they need to and they're, they're, they're powered down a bit when, when they don't need to. So there's a huge optimization problem in there that needs to be solved by looking at the demand of enterprises and, and consumers, adapting that to the sources of energy that are available uh, and maximizing all of that for maximum use of energy, maximum uh, uh distribution of that energy from the right point so there's less loss as we know all distribution lines have loss in them and you'd like to avoid that loss by using local sources of energy as much as possible so you don't have distribution loss you'd like to not overproduce energy that then gets sunk somewhere because it can't be stored necessarily because you don't have the battery complex to store it so all of that is a massive optimization that would save natural resources would re reuse reusable natural resources as much as possible and provide perfect energy supply for all circumstances without blackouts, brownouts, down periods, etc. So, so think of that as a foundational network that if we can't power everything optimally, all of this beautiful productivity enhancing stuff we talked about couldn't be, uh, can't be co correctly realized because there just won't be the the powering of that infrastructure needed to to drive either the network or the the AR system or the cloud system uh, that I've been, I've been talking about. So that's a fundamentally important and a, a digital network of the future, the energy and utility network as well. So I think now we've covered everything and it's a rich panoply of things that really I think you'll see transform humanity in a profoundly important way. I, I'd like to tell people that the 5G sensors we'll be installing will require so little power that the sensors themselves will become obsolete before the batteries die. I, I think that's a very clever statement. Yes, yeah, so one of the attributes of 5G, other than latency, reliability, capacity, is long battery life. And, and you think, well, why does 5G have anything to say about battery life? It turns out that when a thing connects to a network, there's a lot of protocol exchanges required. 
for the, the thing to talk to the network and vice versa. And that consumes battery life. And it's not even visible to the user of the service. The user of the sensor data doesn't see this exchange is going on. Uh, but it is, and it consumes battery life. And, and, and in high-performing networks, it's quite frequent. It's every few milliseconds the devices typically comes on, say, I'm here, I'm well, and the network responds, good, I see you, go to sleep again. But that requires energy, and that's why battery-powered things on mobile networks today tend to only last a day or less, because they're constantly talking to the network in the background to say where they are and that they're okay and in a good state and they're reachable. So 5G decided to relook at that problem and say, well, many devices don't need to talk that often. And if they do need to talk, maybe they can send the data they need to send on one of the messages just saying they're alive. It's called piggybacking. So they re 5G standards re-looked at that problem and have found much more energy-efficient ways of staying in touch with the network that have much longer uh, battery lives because essentially the energy consumption goes down by a factor of 10 or 100. So instead of a battery lasting a day before recharging, it would last 100 days. Or if you've got a battery that lasts 10 days, it would last 1,000 days and so on. And so that's very much part of the 5G mantra is allow for devices that, that as you said, the only time you will go to them is not to replace the battery, is to upgrade the technology because there's a new spectrum band and a new capability or a new sensor that you want to add to that sensor. So it doesn't just sense visible light, it now senses infrared or ultraviolet or sound because those sensors are going to be upgraded. They will be upgraded because there's new materials and new sensing techniques more often than, than the battery is upgraded. So essentially, it's the sensor driving the change because it's got new capabilities. You're not swapping batteries. And that, that's part of 5G, so it's a very important point. At the beginning of this conversation, you referenced the fact that each of these waves, whether it be the one that was triggered in 1985 with uh, the essentially the, the invention of the ubiquitous computer to where we are today, each wave leads to human happiness. What will make us happy about this wave? So it's a very good question. Uh, the question of happiness, uh, I think, is there's different ways to look at it. It's a one, if you look at the Maslow's hierarchy definition, uh, at the top of that hierarchy of human need, if you want, uh, or human psychological aspiration, is uh, transcendence where you're able to teach others. You've, you've learned everything you need to learn and you've, you have a, a knowledge base that is now sufficiently complete that you can help others. Uh, and I think that's a very nice definition of happiness, the help of others by transference of something. And so at a base level, transference of emotion would be a form of happiness. And I, and I think that's very much true. We mentioned empathic communications. If we could have a new communications paradigm where you could transfer sensory state, what someone was actually feeling, not just the words they're using, then you could argue that 5G uh, play, will play a role in in that form of happiness, call it emotional happiness. But then the knowledge-based happiness, the, the idea that you've accumulated wisdom that you can share is a so, sort of psychological or intellectual form of happiness that I think is very real. And most people would want to be remembered for something they had contributed that wasn't just love and belonging, that's important, but something they did beyond that that was more humanistic, intellectual, cranial, 
cognitive, whatever you want to call it, that there was their larger ability, their superpower, if you want, that they, they had, that they, they were able to teach others. And so I, I think that knowledge transfer, whether it's about an athletic skill or an intellectual skill or a musical skill or a, a manual skill, a manufacturing skill, that sort of knowledge transfer, I think, is deeply at the root of human happiness as well. And, and so that's where we see that if I can accumulate perfect knowledge, assisted by AI systems and machines that help me, that help me understand more than I can understand, understand in isolation, I accumulate more wisdom, knowledge, satisfaction, and then I transfer that to others, then uh, I would say that's my definition of ultimate human happiness. And, and in fact, Helen Keller said it quite nicely. She said, uh, to paraphrase, that knowledge is happiness. The, the discovery of true knowledge, true beliefs, real value, not, not trivial value and, and, and trivial facts and, and maybe even mistaken assumptions, Overcoming that with true knowledge is the true definition of human happiness. And I, I thought when I saw that, why? And But I think it's true. If you think in a Maslow's way, my knowledge has to be useful. It's useful for me, but it's even more useful for others. And that, that has to be a transcendent definition of human value and therefore happiness, I think, uh, at some level, in addition to the love and belonging piece. So, so I really like that definition. I think, so I think everything we've talked about, if humans could be more deeply knowledgeable and contextual, contextual about themselves and contextual about the needs of others, and then transfer that knowledge correctly to others, uh, that's the definition of happiness I like to have. Marcus Weldon is the Chief Technology Officer at Nokia and President of Bell Labs. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. In reference to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, may we achieve our full 5G potential. Excellent chatting with you, and uh, I hope that this conversation today is the beginning of something we can look back on in 20 years and say we had it mostly right. See the future. Listen to what's next. Read about world-changing ideas. All by visiting futurhythmic.com. The Futurhythmic Podcast with Michael Hainsworth is a Nokia original series.